This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It is Tuesday, September the 6th, 2022. And it's one of those weeks where I'm scrambling because a Tuesday without a Monday is a rough Tuesday any time. When it's the first Tuesday of the month, though, I also have my uh, coffee chat with Nicole Sauce and John Willis that happened this morning, so that doubles me up for the day. Uh, fortunately, my guest had us out at 1.45 today to uh, meet his schedule, so that gave me a little bit more breather room. And my guest today has been on the show before, Jesse Markowitz. If you recognize the name, he was on before talking about Bitcoin Lightning and setting up Lightning nodes, and specifically how he did that using the Start9 Embassy server. I have him coming back today. We're not really talking about Bitcoin today. I think it'll come up a little bit because he did do a fundraiser on Geyser, which used Bitcoin on Lightning. However, we're going to talk about uh, the Start9 Embassy server and total digital sovereignty today. It, a little bit different than we have in the past. I've had Matt Hill from Start9 on the show uh, I think twice. It could be three times, and I know at least, at least twice. And of course, Start9 is the sponsor. In fact, they're our sponsor of the day today. It just worked out that way. It wasn't planned. Um... But Jesse, after I had him on last time, said, do you want me to come back on and talk about Start9 from an end user, how I actually use it, what I actually do with it, why I use it to do the things that I do with it beyond Bitcoin and Lightning? So even though technically today we are doing a Bitcoin breakout episode, it's not really about Bitcoin. It's more about technology that I think would be interested, interesting to people who are Bitcoin people and who are, aren't, but we'll still make it a Bitcoin breakout on a Tuesday. So we have the Survival Podcast today, episode 3160, Bitcoin Breakout 18, as we continue to build that series up. Of course, Bitcoin Breakout is available on its own feed for people that only want the tech and Bitcoin content at thebitcoinbreakout.com. With that, before we get into it, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is... Start Night Embassy Servers, take back your digital sovereignty. Uh, this was a company that when I found them, I was like, this is a company that's actually leading the ability of people to make meaningful changes in their lives. I, I, I really don't think people get how empowering it is to be able to run your own little server right in your own house and take complete control of all your data. And to be able to do things that people always thought they needed a third party to be able to do, to be able to do it for yourself and provide it for your friends and family even. Uh, since we're going to talk about that all day, I'll just leave it there. We're going to talk with Jesse about some of the amazing things Start9 can do. But I want to point out something today. If you're an MSB member, your discount on an embassy server pays for your membership for over three years. And that's the base server. That's the cheapest one you can get. Pays for your membership for over three years at full price. So if you're a member, by God, if you're going to buy a Start9 server, use your discount code. And if you're not a member and you're going to buy a Start9 server, get a membership because it's free. It's how it works out. It's free. It pays you back immediately. Next up today, ButcherBox.com. You know, ButcherBox, the only sponsor I have that I actually take product instead of money for. That's right. Every month, a giant box of meat shows up right out of my front gate. I go out there, I get the best pastured pork, pastured poultry, grass-fed beef, and awesome seafood that you can have shipped right to your house on an ongoing basis. Check them out at ButcherBox.com. And they're also an MSB sponsor for you guys that are members. You get $10 off a month forever. 
forever with ButcherBox. So check them out today at ButcherBox.com. But if you're a member, make sure you use that discount code and get that off. That's $120 a year on a $50 annual membership. So just in those two sponsors alone, we'll plug for the MSB today. I don't hit it as hard as I should probably since it is my main source of income. Guys, you're talking right there. Everything is covered, and there's more than 60 other partners that offer discounts in the MSB or Members Support Brigade. To learn more, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. With that, let's drop on into the live feed with Jesse. And we are live. Jesse just had a last-minute thing he had to do there. I have uh, Jesse Markowitz coming back today to talk to us about Start 9 servers. We talked about that to a degree last time, but we were really talking mostly about Bitcoin lightning nodes last time. So we're going to talk about other things that Start 9 does uh, other than just running Bitcoin nodes because there is a lot more that it does. And I've had uh, Matt Hill from Start 9 on at least twice. But I thought it would be really cool to bring an end user on who's kind of switched on with technology. Say, this is what I actually do with it. Because, you know, owners of companies are like, here's all the things you can do. And then users are like, here's all the things I do and the way I do them and why I do them the way that I do them. So I thought that would be cool. Real quick, just before we introduce Jesse a little further here, just a reminder, we will never contact you for any personal information on private chat in the video comments because you see my logo does not mean it's me. Please don't give anybody any personal information or Bitcoin addresses or keyword phrases or anything like that because one of you did, and it makes me sad. So now I have to do this every single episode. With that, hey, Jesse, man, welcome to uh, the Bitcoin Breakout and the Survival Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to have you on. You were a pretty big hit last time. And like I said, we really did dig into uh, running lightning nodes. And specifically, you use your embassy server to do that. But we were more generic into the world of running lightning nodes. And then we had some general Bitcoin lightning discussion. But we never actually said, you know, hey, this is what a Start9 server is. Now, I have them as a, as a, as a sponsor, and I have a Start9 server. My hand's touching it right here. Um, so it's kind of odd for me to ask this question. But I think it's good for people to hear it from a different perspective. If somebody were to ask you, what is Start9? And what is an embassy server? How would you answer that? Yeah, so Start9 is the name of the company. Embassy OS, Embassy Operating System, is the name of the operating system. But basically what it is, is it's a server you can run in your own house without having to spend years to become a Linux guru, administrator, or any of that stuff. Literally, it's a you put a standard USB connector, put the hard drive into the main server, you put the server to your wall outlet, connect it to your internet, and then, bang, you're running your own server. Yeah, and I like that because, like, when I had Curry on, Adam Curry, he was like, so just download Umbral and then do this and then get over here. Like, I'm like, you know what? If, if you knew how to do what you said, you wouldn't have asked the question of how to do it. Right. And I think, it's, I think it's good to get skill up to that level, but you and I both know the easier you onboard people to a thing, the more people you'll onboard to a thing. And, and it's not just about the skill level because I've done Linux administration in the past. It's yeah. not like it's something which I could not do. It's a matter of, I don't want to spend the time. I don't want to spend the effort going back to the Linux administration work. What I really want to do is I want to have a server. So yeah. this allows me to run the services that I want to run without actually having to do all of the admin work that I don't want to do. Yeah, and I think people, like when they hear the word server, they get the wrong idea of what that is. Like when I was in uh, telecommunications and infrastructure and data cabling and, and testing and fiber optics and all, to, to a server then was a big box that was in a rack or a big tower that was in a closet yes. somewhere. And I can't unplug my server. It doesn't reach here 
but I have a box of screws in my hand, and, a, and an embassy server, the base model one anyway, is not much bigger than this box that I'm holding here, right? Yeah. And, and how how can that little bitty box be so useful to us then? What how can it how can it you know do the things that we think of as like being this racked system of giant boxes or something like that? Well, the, the real difference really is when you think about running a desktop, you've got a keyboard, you've got your video, you've got your mouse, and you're all interacting with it immediately. On the server, it runs 7 by 24, and when someone wants to connect to it, they connect to it. But other than that, it still keeps running in the background, and that's really the major difference. You know, when you're on your desktop, it's on word processing something or looking up Excel yeah. or whatever else it is. The server runs all the time. It's always available. And when you're doing things like Bitcoin nodes or Lightning nodes where it needs to be up all the time, it really doesn't make sense to put that on a desktop where, hey, you shut down at the end of the day, it all goes away. So that's where you need to be a server. But in terms of the size, it all depends on how much how much power you need. I mean, data centers do huge amounts of work, depending on what you need to do. It may not require that much hardware to do the different pieces. Yeah, and, and I think that's a big part of it. What are you looking to do? If you're looking to host a website, you can do that with a relatively small uh, device, honestly. But if you're looking yes. to host a website and you're going to have, you know, a couple hundred thousand people pounded every day, for you know a, 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 a fairly large two hour long audio file, well, you, you, that's not going to work. So I think servers yeah. adapt, and so we're talking about a technology and a place in a network versus a size or a power or a data stream capacity or something like that. Correct. Correct. So why did you buy a Start Nine server? I think convenience, obviously, you kind of you know referred to that already versus running your own, you know, independent Linux administrative shit in your house. But when I say, why did you buy one? I mean, from a functional standpoint, like what, yeah. what was it about it that you knew it could do that made you like, yeah, I'll spend a few hundred bucks on this. Yeah. For, for me, it was really, I finally found a way that I could opt out of big tech. Okay. You know, so much of our lives are, Microsoft Outlook. So much of our lives are Google Calendar, um, Google Docs, Google Sheets, all this stuff online, Dropbox, OneDrive, all these different things that are all other people's servers. All your data, all your life, all your stuff is out there on someone else's server, and it's convenient, but you don't really have a lot of control over that, what they do with it, how they protect it. But it also, it's not just how they protect it, but like whether or not you're going to be able to access it tomorrow. Yeah. Like if yeah. you fall afoul of the wrong people, right? I mean, if we think of some of the big things that were taken down in a coordinated manner, like we're not, none of us are parlor. None of us are as big as they yeah. were. They're not as big as they were because of the damage that was done. But when you have two app stores and a hosting provider attack that one entity, on one day in a coordinated manner and every and nobody goes to jail. Nobody gets sued. Everybody gets away. It's all okay. And I think what will happen is people look at it the wrong way. They'll be like, well, I'm not that important. Why would they do it to me? Well, no, the, the way you should be looking at it is because they could do it to somebody that had that much money, that much power, that much reach. Then you are, you are, you're like a cockroach in the words of uh, Kevin from, uh, Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank, right? They will crush you like the cockroach that you are because you have nothing. There's nothing you could ever do. And I think people don't realize, like, you can run afoul of big tech without 
without being Jack Spiracle the podcaster, right? You can share the wrong meme on the wrong day. Who knows what you know gets you cut off? It, it, it's not even. It's not only that. It might just be that somebody else on your home network with your yeah. IP address does yeah. something, <clears throat> yeah. nothing to do with you, and all of a sudden yeah. you're on, you're on the list, right? That could be the case too. That's that's actually a really valid point. So valid, it derailed my where I was going next. <laughs> Um, no, it's all right. No, that's that, that's totally a valid point that it could be you know somebody else that actually commits the act that that causes you the problem. Why, why would you say that our average listener might want to start nine embassy server? Yeah, so so the main reason would be if you want to own your own tech, if you want to be able to run your own services, and depending upon one of the nice things about Embassy OS is it supports a wide range of services. We'll talk about a bunch of them. Yeah. Across the uh, across this whole thing, for me, where I started was I was just looking to cut out Google. To be honest, I was like, you know what? Can I get away without having to do Google Drive anymore? That was one of the big ones for me. Dropbox was another, um, and then the other one was password management. So if if you're using something like FilePass, LastPass, any of that, all that stuff gets stored on their servers. And to your point, it's it may be encrypted in a way where they can't get into it. But if you run afoul of them, you can find yourself cut off and all that stuff is gone. If you run your own server, you've got 100% control on that. So that's really, for me, why I looked at it, and that's where I got started. And then once I made the decision to go that way, I was looking, well, what else can I do? I found Bitcoin and Lightning, and I'd always wanted to run Bitcoin nodes and Lightning nodes. And trying to do that from scratch, spin up your own Linux, Download all the Bitcoin software, download the Lightning software, spin that up, configure it, get it all running is non-trivial. It's a fair amount of work. Yeah. You start line, point and click, that's it, really. It's yeah. just, you want to run Lightning node? Click here. Pick which one you want to run. Start it. Want to run both? Run both. Easy, easy to go. Yeah, it I occurred to me what I was thinking about yes. when you, you brought that great point, and it, it fits right in with it, actually. So what advice... Do you give somebody in regard to the police asking them questions? Don't, don't, <laughs> don't talk to the cops, right? And any good lawyer will say, do not talk to the cops, right? Don't, and they won't just say it because if you're guilty, you're more likely to get convicted. They'll say because you might be innocent. What you say might have in your mind, no connection to what they're investigating whatsoever. There's, there's a law professor who has this YouTube video. Yeah. Where yeah, he did so this. I'm referring to that video. Yeah, I wish I, if you can find that, add that to yeah. the show notes in the link. It is absolutely brilliant. He starts the presentation of this law school class yeah. saying, I'm going to tell you all the reasons why you shouldn't talk to the cops. And then afterwards we'll have a, I don't know, it's detective or investigator. Uh, yeah. yeah, a lawyer and, me, and I'll let him go last and he'll tell the yeah. whole thing. And it's about an hour-long video, and the part about it that's brilliant is the – it's not that if you're guilty, you shouldn't talk to the cops. It's not if you have yeah. something to hide, you should talk, shouldn't talk to the cops. It's that yeah. it is never in your best interest to talk to the cops. Ever. Ever. I loved how the cop wanted to defend his position, but his opening remarks were basically, well, everything he just said was true. Yes. But exactly. let me tell you why you should talk to me anyway. And then it was just <laughs> pathetic after that, you know. So this is my my point with this. If you are not managing your own data, you're disclosing information every day that you shouldn't disclose. 
and you don't know what could pop you up on the Stasi radar, and then you're being investigated. And I will tell you this about Google. If they just say, give us all the data, at least it appears that Google says, no, we will not be doing that. But if they say, I want Jesse Markowitz's data, and here is a piece of paper that says you have to give it to me, they will give it to them immediately. Yes. And then you're like, but I didn't do anything wrong. But that doesn't matter because they could be looking for instance, let's say somebody got whacked, right? Use an old mafia term. Guy gets whacked. Somehow you know the guy that got whacked. Right. You don't even know the guy was whacked though. They're investigating you. You guys happen to stop by the liquor store five minutes apart. Something in your, your text data says that this happened. Right. And now all of a sudden they have probability that you guys were interacting. And now a week later, you know, Billy's whacked. And now we're, we're digging it. And, and people would listen to that and say, that's a bit far out. No, it's not. And I think we're also going in technocracy land as well, where tech, the technological companies and the oligarchy become the new cops with, which like, Oh, Mr. Mark Witz. Seems like you have a propensity to stop by the fried chicken place quite a bit. Your insurance is going up, right? I mean, yeah. things, people don't think that things like that are, are going to happen, but they're actually happening already. I'm being a little plucky with it, pun intended on the chicken, right? But it could also be, look, Mr. Markowitz, you seem to stop by the liquor store quite a bit. Wonder if you have some health problems we don't know about, right? I mean, there's all – so you're basically broadcasting – information on a daily basis that any attorney would tell you don't give that information to the police and you're giving it to all the police private and public yeah. I, I think the real issue about this is just kind of a we live in a much more public world today than we ever did before much more of what we do who we are who we talk to all the rest of that is public information or if not public more easily accessible and if you're okay with that, that's fine. But a lot of us in the, in the liberty movement and whatnot would prefer to keep at least some amount private and at least limit that amount somewhat. And the challenge is as soon as you give someone else your data, you no longer have real control over it. Whatever they do with it is, is based upon their controls, their everything about that. If they never get your data, they can't do anything with it. If you don't use Gmail... They can't look in your emails to get you, you know, the advertising that they think you're going to want. Yeah. Yeah. Or to find out what you were telling somebody. Right. I think one thing people have to understand about email, though, is your email is as secure as the other side of the email is. Right? It's actually yeah. less secure than that. People yeah. should really be thinking about email as being very much in the level of postcards. Yeah. Because from my computer, it bounces. Like when I sent you an email earlier this morning, I said, yes, I'll yeah. be on, no problem. Yeah. Yeah. It probably went through six different servers. Yep. I can't tell you how many routers. Is there security and encryption between some of those? Between some there are, between others there may or may not be. What what I mean is I can be using the most ultimate badass encrypted email. Yeah. And so when it goes through that server, maybe it's not readable. It can't be decrypted. But I've sent something that allows you to read it on the other end along with it. And once it's sitting in your Outlook or your Gmail oh, yeah. Then, so when I say that, I mean, no matter how, how stringent your security, you can set up all the encryption you want. And if you're emailing your aunt on Hotmail. Yes. Then what you said to her is still visible on that side. And that's like a lot of people use Proton Mail and it's like, that's great. If you're sending it to somebody else with a Proton Mail account, people will attack Proton Mail, whether it's secure or not. I'm just, I'm just, for this discussion, I'm assuming that it is, even if it isn't. 
Because again, if I email you from ProtonMail to, uh, you know, Hotmail or Yahoo or whatever, then that slide is wide open. Right. And that's something people don't, I think, <clears throat> tend to think about. What do you think listeners should, should consider getting a, a Start 9 for? Like what, why do you think a typical TSP listener might want one of these? Um, I, I think the main reason why someone would want one of this is because there's a particular service that they want to run on it. Again, like I said, for myself, trying to get out from underneath big tech um, was the main main reason for me. On Bitcoin Breakout, if you want to run a Bitcoin node or a Lightning node, really, this has got to be one of the easiest possible ways to do it, without without a doubt, without a doubt. How do you feel about some of the other services, though? Let's kind of dig into some of these other sure. services. Like, let's talk about, like, password management and why somebody would want to use a server for that versus something like – because Bitwarden, right, is – Yeah. It, it, it's great, but I don't actually need a server to use Bitwarden. Why would I want to run Bitwarden on my own server? Yeah, so Bitwarden is actually one of the first ones that I implemented, and I'm, I'm very – And real quick, tell people what it is in case yeah, anybody so might Bit, not know. Bitwarden, Bitwarden basically is a password manager. So, you know, <clears throat> right now I've got probably six, seven, eight hundred different passwords for all the different websites and all the different stuff that I get involved with for everything. A lot of them are no longer valid because the website died years ago, but I still have all that stuff. For me to try to remember every single one of those with a complex, strong password is incredibly difficult. So instead, I take all of those, I put them into a password manager, and I have one very strong password that I remember, which is the password to the password manager. And then the password manager encrypts everything else underneath that. And there's a number of different services that you can use for this. A lot of them are server-based. But again, we get into that same problem we talked about before, where if it's in the cloud, it's somebody else's server. You don't actually control that. So you've got some concerns and limitations with that. If you run it yourself, putting it on a server allows you to access it from your different computers. So for me, I've got Bitwarden that Bitwarden that I run on my Embassy OS server, and then from my desktop, from my laptop, from my phone, from my iPad, I can use the Bitwarden client on each of those to sync and automatically have my passwords all these different places that I need to get to them. Makes it very easy, and the best part about it is it's a hundred percent under my control. I think another thing that people don't maybe realize that a start night server will do for them is all of these services we're going to talk about. If you ended up somewhere without your equipment mm -hmm. and you have the ability to just log into your server, once you're on your server, you have access to all your services that are on your oh, server. Funny how that works. The server provides services. <laughs> and so th this is a way that unless your house burns down or something, no matter where you are, if you can get online and there's still an Internet connection to your house, you can gain this data. So it's nice to be able to run the, the, the thing on all the devices and sync it, like you just said. But it's also nice that I can be somewhere uh, and I'm borrowing my buddy's computer because, I don't know, TSA stole my computer or threw it down the stairs or, you know. Or, like, I mean, I was, I was actually at a, uh, a seminar I had to present at one time, and I just had a MacBook just die. Like, right. MacBooks never die never. until they die. And when they die, they die. Like, there was no reason. It just died. And so, in that instance, 
it wouldn't it be great if you could still, you know, like if you were using Google Drive or something and you could get that presentation that you had and pull it down or whatever. I, I, I don't think I'm a typical user because I have a great big giant server, right, and a web data center, but most people don't. So, like, when I'm traveling like that, I always have my backup slides and everything there. But the no, fact that's, that's a perfect example. One of, yeah. one of the services that I use is File Manager. Okay. And I was on travel on the West Coast, and I needed one of my files that I did not have with me. And I was able to go to my server. I happen to be on the West Coast. My server, my home is on the East Coast. Connect in, download it, and bang, brought it in really easily. There's also an option. I've not done as much with this. I've got it for some files, but not as much, called SyncThing, which is kind of a um, open source version of Dropbox. Say that again. There's a, the, One of the services is called SyncThing. SyncThing. S-Y-N-C-T-H-I-N-G, SyncThing. Okay. And what it allows you to do is kind of like with Dropbox, you have a Dropbox folder on your desktop. And it automatically syncs everything to the Dropbox server. And then if you've got another computer, you can also sync that to Dropbox and keep them all in sync. SyncThing allows you to do that exact same, t- exact same thing, but you do it from your embassy server, and you don't have to do it on someone else's. And this way, when I add a file to that particular directory on my computer, it automatically gets uploaded to my embassy OS, and automatically download it to all my other devices that subscribe to that same folder. So I can keep okay. them all in sync. Yeah. So you're running your own LAN, basically, but you're running a LAN LAN. Not, no, no, it's, not it's LAN. It's a wide area. Not it's, LAN. It's, yeah. It's not a LAN at all. No, it's no, a, it's not. It's the wrong it's term. It's a file server yeah. service that I can do. And that's the part about that's really great is it's not on my local area network. Yeah. When I was on the West Coast, I could get to wherever I wanted to. And There's a word I'm thinking of, and I said LAN, yeah. it's not what I meant. It's uh, like an intranet um, mm-hmm. th- th- where you have – many people would be familiar with this in a work environment, and yeah. everybody has access to, let's say, if you're in the marketing department, the marketing folder. Exactly. And, and they're yeah. able to that way when they're working on documents, see the latest version of the document, like et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. and that happens automatically. And when you're logged in, you are able to access those files, even though they're not on your computer. In this yes. case, they actually are. They're actually syncing, so they are on your hard drive, and they are on a central server. Yeah. This, this, and, and this is not new technology. This is not anything which is particularly unique. Anyone who works in a modern office where you're using um, uh, any of the Microsoft Office suite of products, very often, one of the things that you'll find is that you've got a automatically saving versions, and what it actually does is it saves it to a SharePoint server behind the scenes. Yeah. And that's what does the versioning. And that's kind of the your company-based intranet for all of that. But all that stuff is owned by whoever's got that server. This is where Start9, this is where Embassy gives the power to the people, right? It allows us to do it ourselves, and you don't have to be – you know, this great IT admin or spend thousands and thousands of dollars to get this thing set up. You buy a box, a couple hundred bucks, you plug it in, and you can run your own departmental server. You know, um, SharePoint was the term I was actually looking for. Oh, there you go. I, yeah. I am so divorced from corporate America. I don't remember any of this crap anymore. It's like a bad memory. 
but yeah, SharePoint, that's what we always used, like yeah. with marketing departments and stuff like that, so that everybody was all synced. In the olden days, it was IBM's product, Lotus Notes. Oh, I remember Lotus Notes. That's how yeah. old I am. Yeah, I know. Oh, that's old. That's it is. Way, <laughs> that's, that's got dust on it. It's so old. Oh, um, let, let's let's talk about what. Are there any other things that you're doing with your Start Nine server now? You're running yeah. a Bitcoin yeah. node. You're running a Lightning node. You're so, let's see. So we we talked about Vault Warden, uh, Bitwarden already for the for the password manager stuff. Uh, we talked about the file browser and sync thing. I okay. also got Photo View in. So uh, I don't remember who it was that Google bought. It's now called Google Pix or something like that. But basically, if you upload all your pictures to Google. And they automatically sort them and, and organize them and save them for you and allow you to create albums and share that stuff. But again, there's an open source version of that called PhotoView. So I run that on my Embassy OS as well. And I've used that to share like an album with some family members and stuff. I've not done a huge amount with that yet. I've just gotten started on that. But that's a pretty cool one also. So I've done that also. And that's, again, a very easy thing to set up, which is what's great about Embassy OS and it does not require you to put your pictures on Flickr or, I don't know, whatever the other image sharing places are out on the web where it's really on somebody else's server. There's a whole bunch of um, um, concerns, scandals with some of the celebrities and stuff, right, where they had their private photos that got exposed. Yeah. How much of yeah. that was them revealing their account versus somebody actually hacking the account versus – some insider at a server-based, cloud-based, whatever, doing things, I couldn't tell you. What I can tell you is, yeah, there you go, a photo of you. Yep. If you're running it on your server, it's 100% in your control what you do. And you don't have to worry about anybody else getting it there. You've got it. It's all yours. And, and Hunter was asking earlier in the chat, like, yeah. you know, what's different about Start9? You know, what, what makes it the best or whatever? And my thing is ease of use. So what I want, well, the reason I brought this up on the screen when you mentioned it is it says get, <laughs> if it says get right there, well, if I was, yes. if I was logged into my server right now, instead of talking you, I click that button and it, you have to think of it because it's, it's really like they call it a marketplace, but think of it like an app store. It's an app store. They call it right. marketplace, but it's really an app store. Absolutely. So when you want to get, you know, uh, Waze or you want to get, you know, DoorDash app or whatever, yeah. you go to the marketplace and Apple or Google, you type it in, you pull it up, and you hit install, and all of a sudden you're a genius right. software installer, and you've installed and enabled an app on your device. Right. This does that, but you're just installing it on your server, and then you're able to access it for multiple devices, and it really is that easy. And, and, and it's, more importantly, I think, for, for most users, is three months from now, when a new version of that comes out and it gets repackaged for, 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 uh, for Start 9, when that happens, you don't have to do anything special or complicated. Just like that one-click install, you do the exact same thing. With one click, you can upgrade it. And it will automatically take care of all of the details, everything else needs to happen, and it's just done. It makes it really, really easy to happen. Indeed. So, yeah. That, that's, that's, that's the big advantage for Start9. It's, it's not that it's faster. It's not that it's better. It, it just makes it easy. And that's really the big, the big plus on that. So that I, I was one of you we talked about, right? Yep. We talked about running a Bitcoin node. Uh, we talked about running a Lightning node. 
I also run a bunch of other services around Lightning. So I run right, the Lightning, Thunderhub, Lightning Terminal, Bounce of Satoshis, LNDG, uh, Lightning Jet. And each of those is one of those things that would be another software install that I'd need to manage and track. I'd have to do all the software work to do all that. And then every time the upgrade comes out, I'd have to do upgrades to it as well. With Embassy OS, when the new upgrade comes out, I just decide, yeah, do I want to do this or not? I want to upgrade. One click upgrade and it's good to go. And it makes it so much easier than all the rest of that. And then the actual interface to use these different software packages, when it gets packaged for Embassy OS, there's kind of like a little shortcut screen where it shows for this service, here are the interfaces. Here's the links to open them up. Here's the configurations that you need to set. So it makes it very easy to work with. There is a limitation. If you want to go in and change this particular configuration file, you want to modify this to that or do like a lot of the detailed tweaking because you don't have the raw install, you cannot do that just as easily. You would have to go in through, like, through the command line and you can do that stuff, but that's a bit more work. But if you just want to basically go in and just run the stuff, it's a no-brainer. It makes it really easy to do. And I'm gonna I'm gonna pull that screen back up for a second, Jesse, yeah. and just so people can get a feel for like how much there actually is available. Um, when These I are this morning, there were like 26 different services. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't even finished going through the services that I'm running. Plus, there's other ones yeah. as well. Sure. Yeah. If you, yeah. you bring any of them up, I'll bring them up on the screen as you're talking about it. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So the other ones that I run, again, in the, the Bitcoin um, Lightning world, I run BTC Pay Server. BTC Pay Server allows me to um, actually go ahead and really easily accept Bitcoin and Lightning payments. And it makes, again... It's not that you can't do it otherwise. It just makes it really easy to do. Um, we'll talk more about this later, I hope. But I also did a crowdfunding as part yeah. of Start Line. I actually used BTC Pay Server on my Embassy OS to do the crowdfunding for this stuff, which is really an awesome, awesome way of putting that together. So I've done BTC Pay Server. The other thing I've done is uh, Mempool. And if folks have never seen Mempool, that is just a really neat uh, way of looking at what's going on with Bitcoin. Um, as part of my side hustle, I do yourpersonalcryptosystem.com. I teach people about Bitcoin. And one of the areas I always had a bit of a challenge explaining to people is like, well, when you do something from your wallet, you try to like send something somewhere else. How does it like, how does it all flow? Being able to show mempool allows me to talk through the actual process where in your wallet, you create a Bitcoin transaction. You sign that transaction. It goes into mempool. And all the different servers out there look at it and try to put it into blocks. You can see the blocks and see all that type of stuff. Um, it's just, it, it, so it's a really neat tool from that perspective. The advantage about being able to run it on my server is nobody else has to know what I'm searching on. So, for example, if you do a bunch of Google searches and you search for, um, I don't know, I don't want to get you banned on anything. Any controversial subject, whatever it might be, okay. right? Yeah. Whether it be um, uh, substances you might want to imbibe, ways for you to personally defend yourself, um, organizations that are out of favor which would, with whatever government ha you happen to live in their geographical dis 
distinction. If you just go into Google and you search for those types of terms, you could potentially get in trouble for that. And folks in Google and every other place knows what's going on. And if you think, well, I'm using this alternative search engine, so that doesn't apply, all that data is flying right through unencrypted, right across your network, through, you know, whoever you're using as an ISP has access to all that information if you're doing it without encryption. And and if you're looking in Bitcoin and you want to say, hey, I wonder what's going on with this particular address. Yeah. That kind of like to your earlier point, right? Um. Maybe I guess Jesse paying. must have some business going on with this address. Why else would he look it up? And, and it may be that it's perfectly innocent. You were just like picking some random addresses you saw, you know, looking through the web. You saw some random addresses. You said, hey, I wonder how much money this guy's got, this address has. What transactions were those? And you just like follow the chain sometimes, look at stuff. If you do that on anyone else's server, it's potentially visible. What were you looking at? What were you doing? Everything else. If you and look back at to my don't server, talk to the it's cops, entirely right? private. Yeah, don't talk to the cops, right? So you're talking to the cops. That's what I, I, I try to explain with all of this stuff when it comes to encryption. You're you're talking to the police all the time, and you're giving them information that you would not give it to if you knew it's, you were it's doing. Not, it's not just the cops. It's also you're not don't talk to the national Enquirer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, and when I say cops, I mean. Technocratic cops, oligarchy cops, and the state. I mean, all of it. You don't yeah, give that data away. All of that. Yeah. All of that. Exactly. I guess with using that. Stay private. Yeah. And I guess with using that mempool uh, option, it also might help you explain to people that you're onboarding, like, you, the money's not in your wallet. That's like exactly. one of the most difficult things. Exactly. To, you start explaining, well, see, you have access and control of certain UTXOs, and then you're just basically signing transactions, and all this is basically a way to look at them and a way to interact with them. And they start looking at you like you have a crocodile crawling out of your left ear, and that thing from Star Trek, the, the search for Spock one, where they put the thing in the guy's ear and it took yes, control of his brain right. going in the other one while the crocodile's coming out the other one. Like, because it, it doesn't seem to make any sense, but when you can actually see this is how the data's moving around. Right. And when you talk about, I'm going to make a block with all these transactions, and you can actually see visually, oh, here's a block. Yeah. Here's a bunch of transactions. And you can click on a transaction and actually see what's in the transaction. What are the inputs? Yeah. What are the outputs? And this is why you, and this is also like great. So now you can explain to, you know, uh, you know, customer XYZ. This is why when you set up accepting Bitcoin payments on your website, you don't just take a plug in, stick one Bitcoin address in there and take all your payments to one address. Exactly. Right. Because exactly. people never see about that is that's not just what the government will know. Uh, the government is actually the last entity that I'm really worried about in that situation. Right. What I'm worried about, if I'm running a web store, I'm worried about the fact that my competitor okay. can pull up that address and by matching dollar amount or, you know, Bitcoin amounts to dollars at the time sure. to my catalog of products, determine exactly what I sell the most of at what price point on what day sure. right, and basically get incredible, incredible competitive intelligence. It would be like them getting access to my merchant account because it's essentially what they've done. And, and, and potentially if the folks buying from you are not particularly privacy centric, yeah. They might also get a customer list. Yeah. You know, that's a great point, too, as to why this technology is so valuable. I'm not saying that there would be no way for somebody from an alphabet agency to gain access to Jesse Markowitz's 
uh, embassy server or some nefarious person in some nefarious part of the world to do that. I am saying that the cost in, in energy necessary to gain that access is so high relative to the potential reward that I'm not probably going to do it unless I'm specifically investigating you and being paid from a limitless fund, slush fund to do it. Like you popped up on the wrong list and now I'm some agent investigating. Otherwise, I'm not doing it. If I'm a nefarious actor, I'm not doing it. And the reason I'm not doing it is there's a very small amount of value in that data. It would be much more intelligent for me to do something like go try to breach Gmail yes. and get access to, or go on to Coinbase and try to get access to their customer records, right? Like, it, so when you're using things like Dropbox and you're like, those are the big targets. Cause if I get in there, I get everything. Well, this, this is, this is also one of the reasons why an embassy OS is safer is because it's a smaller target. Yeah. It's a much smaller target. If you get to Coinbase, there's millions and millions of customers with millions or billions of dollars worth of value, whatever it is. If you have my embassy OS, which Maybe a little bit easier in Coinbase. Maybe not. I don't know. But you're, you're going to get my family photos. Yes, cat the files I printed, right? You know? Your cat pictures. Your, yeah, right? Yes, like, exactly. And, and you don't want that information out there. But again, if I have one person's data like that, it's not that useful to me if I want to sell it or capitalize on it. But if I can get massive amounts of demographic data Correct. consolidated – then I have potential it's extreme value, value there, it's, right? It's a right target. Yeah. Um, we, we've talked about this, but, it's, it, you know, it's really not hard to run one of these. It's not like you got to put up a data center in your home or anything like that, is it? Oh, that's that's the, that's the best part of this. I was, it was crazy easy to run. Literally plug and play. You don't need anything special. Um, literally, when I unboxed it, I, I plugged it in, turned it on, and that was it. Um, I did do a couple of extras on my side because I knew that I wanted to uh, do Bitcoin and Lightning by the time I received it. So when I put it in, I put it into the battery backup. So um, in, in my house, I've got the cable modem, my primary router, my Start 9 box are all plugged in on the battery side of that UPS. And the last time I did a test on that, it went, ran for like four, four or five hours when I stopped the test. And I still had some battery left. So if I, you know, if I've had a real outage, it's a different issue, but yeah. I don't have to worry about the glitches or anything else like that. Um, I also added a small fan to cool it down a bit. Um, I was reading up some stuff and it was one of those things where I decided I didn't need to do it. It was running in the high 50s pretty consistently, 50 degrees centigrade for the start. It's one of the cool things. Yeah. If you have an embassy server, if you go under monitor, you can actually monitor some of the statistics about how much memory is in use, how much storage is in use, how much of the disk. You can also monitor what's the current temperature of the device. I have no idea what they do, but it's pretty cool. So if they run hot, like really hot, that can degrade the overall lifespan. So mine was running pretty consistently in the high 50s, which is considered fine. But I had a thought that if the air conditioning in that room goes out, yeah, maybe it'd be an issue. So I added this little fan, and now the temperature's in the low 40s pretty consistently. Um, it's I a big difference on equipment, speaking as somebody who used to sell computer <laughs> hardware. It's a huge, it, it, it gets into what we call mean time between failures. Exactly. So, so what that is for people that aren't from that world is every piece of equipment will die at some point. Right. And the meantime is 
half or more will die by that point. And that means a lot of it will go way past the mean. The mean is not an average. It's the mean. It's the midpoint. And uh, anything you can do to up your hours on MTBFs is, is a huge thing. Exactly. And w- when I used to sell industrial uh, hardware, we had stuff that was spec to really high temperatures and harsh environments. But let me tell you, there was two different specs, right? There was an MTBF where you co-located this in an air-conditioned central office, right. and there was an MTBF for you're going to put this thing in a box on a, a, a in a Siemens uh, box out on a drilling site in West right. Texas. That's good. It's going to have a totally different mean time between failures. It's still good, but it's it's it ain't what it is if you air condition it. Yeah. So, so I, I put all this stuff in, but really all of that is extra, not really required. Um, I did do the, uh, with the, um, the kilowatt meter to see how much power it actually took. And I did the calculation. I don't remember exactly how many watts it was, but it was so small. It was unbelievable. I do recall that when I calculated out the electricity cost, it was something about $10 a year is what it cost me the electricity to run this thing. So, I mean, really. It's easy to plug in. It doesn't take up that much electricity. It runs right next to my cable modem and router, and nobody else in the family even you know does, doesn't notice it. So there's no data center requirement type of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk about your experience crowdfunding with a new service for Start oh, yeah. Nine. So you you wanted to see a service on Start Nine, and you did a crowdfunding. I think. And did you use Geyser? I did not. I oh, okay. Did not. Okay. So I, actually, you know what? Um, this is, yeah, let's talk about the crowdfunding first. So on the crowdfunding side, there's a service that I wanted on Embassy OS that it didn't have. So I could do the file management, which was great. But if I wanted to do something like Google Docs, where I could have a document, I could edit it on the server, okay. have somebody else connected to my server and have them edit it as well. And one of the cool things about Google Docs is we can edit it at the same time. I can see your edits. You can see my edits. Mm. Do that type of stuff and work together, collaboration on all of this stuff, and, and make that work. Um, so I wanted to be able to do that. And with the just file manager level, I couldn't do that. I could share the document with you. I could make edits, tell you, okay, it's ready. You can make your edits back and forth. But we couldn't really work on it together. So the service that I found that I wanted to do this with is called CryptPad, C-R-Y-P-T-P-A-D. And again, it's just another open source software that runs. Um, they publish it. They run like a house copy, if you will, on CryptPad.fr, and I'd used it there, and it worked relatively well. It was pretty good. Um, so I said, this would be great to have. So I decided that I wanted it on, on Start9. So I talked to the Start9 folks, and I said, all right, what do I need to do to do this? And they said, well... It's easy. All you have to do is just package it. We've got all these instructions on how to package it so you can take this open source software and put it into a format that you can literally click and install into Start9. I read through those instructions and I went, I could do that, but I'd have to really dig back to my developer days. I'd have to figure out all that stuff, and it would take me a long time to do that. So I said, you know what? I bet you there's somebody else who wants this too. Let me do a crowdfunding. Let me find a developer who's willing to actually do this thing, and let's run that out. So I set up a little crowdfunding page, raised some money, found a developer who's willing to do it. <clears throat> Excuse me, we raised over 1.8 million sats, and I did it all 
I did it all in Satoshis, all in Bitcoin, specifically because I didn't want to deal with dollars. You know, for me, if you send me a dollar, I got to put it in my bank account. And I got to send it from my bank account to someone else's bank account. It becomes a huge pain in the neck. So send me sats, send me Bitcoin. I could deal with that much, much easier. So I used my Embassy OS to host the whole thing. The crowdsourcing page itself was actually created in BTC Pay Server. All of the funds that were received were received through BTC Pay Server to either a BTC address for those folks who wanted to pay on-chain or to my Lightning node through BTC Pay Server if they paid via Lightning. And then when it's time to pay the developer, I just sent it to him. Um, I think one payment I did with him was on-chain and one was through Lightning. But all in Bitcoin, all that stuff, all in Embassy OS. And it was great. It made it really easy to do all of that. And right now, if you want to use CryptPad on Start9, you won't find it in the marketplace yet because it's been packaged and it's mm-hmm. now in alpha testing. Ah. So we're still alpha testing it. And if any, if any of the listeners want to help with alpha testing or when that completes help with beta testing, or if you want to help with coding, packaging, or donating to funding, fixing all the stuff for beta uh, for the beta testing and everything else, let me know because we're still working on that. I think probably sometime in the next 30 to 60 days, we should be done with alpha testing in the beta. And then I'm hoping in the next 60 to 90 days, it'll be out on the uh, S9 marketplace as a regular full-fledged service. Yeah, and I want to pause just here for a second on a comment that Betty yeah. made. It's a plus way above my pay grade, but now I can't stop watching. So she's enjoying us, but she feels like this stuff's actually above. It's not. And what will happen is we'll use some words at times that, that sound really confusing, but they're they're just words you don't know the definition of. right? That's all they are. It doesn't mean we're smart that we know a word that you don't because Betty probably knows words that I don't. Exactly. And so if you don't know a word, what do you do? What, you know, Gen X, we, we actually had this book. Remember the book? You opened it up. It said dictionary on it, and you looked up the word, and then you understood the word, and then you're like, okay, now I understand it. And Jesse and I both will do our best to not use words like that, but there are times when I don't really know what to call it unless I use the word that says what it is. And so sometimes we might use a word like a UTXO, uh, but all we're saying is basically a Bitcoin address, right? For, for the simplest way to explain it, that's what we mean. So we'll try to keep it there, but don't think this is, this is one of those things that only seems hard until you do it. Yes. Right? It yes. always seems I hard think, until I think you do it. I think that's very, very true. And again, one of the things that made it very easy for me working with Start9 and Embassy OS was I was able to focus on learning Bitcoin learning Lightning, learning how to make a Lightning payment, learning just the BTC pay server aspect of it without getting bogged down in all of the, oh, I have to run a server part of it. Yeah, I didn't have to, like, figure out all that side of things. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's take it back to, like, so most people today, they get one of these, a smartphone, right? And they, they get this, and they need a new one, so they go to the hell that is the store, or if you're like me, you just order it online, it comes in a box. It has a great big instruction manual, and you take the instruction manual and you throw it away. You don't care. You turn it on. You run through sync, and then you're like, "Oh, I heard about this new app," and you get the app and you start using it. And when somebody tells you about another new app, you get the app and you start using it. And so everybody looks at this and says, "This is simple. This is easy. It's only simple and easy because you just spent the last 20 years of your life being trained by the market of how to use it. Right. This is basically a new thing that works very, very close to the same way, right? Yes." And so 
imagine then the person that says, this is complicated, I can't understand it. You know how to use this device. But think about if you were trying to explain how to use this device to somebody that never saw one before. It would be hard. They even knew what a cell phone was. Like they, they, they were like, they were brought here from 1997 and they remember flip phones and Motorola racers and shit like that, right? But no Blackberries and that's come and gone, right? There, no smartphones, no, no Androids, no iOS, none of that. And then you're like, well, all you have to do is go to the app store and search for the app that you're looking for. And then you'll double click on it to confirm that it's you. And then it will download and you have to wait for it to download. And once it downloads, you'll be able to open it and then you can use it. Now, every person out there that heard that probably went, yeah, sure. No problem. But if you didn't know that, it would sound all download. What the hell is a download on a phone? Are you crazy? Isn't that something you do when you want to get pictures off your digital camera onto your computer? So, this is just something, it's new, but it really isn't that hard. I think there's two sides to it, understanding how and understanding why. Yes. And, and those tend to be different. So, like, here's an instance. Let's talk about another service. Oh, I'll, actually, I want to, before I get distracted, let's go deeper into your, your crowdfunding. Yeah. Because this makes me think of, so you did this for some technical thing that you wanted, and so now it's more technical yes. and technical, technical, technical. Let's look at it a different way. You used your own device to provide a way for people that wanted a thing to contribute so that the thing could exist. Let's, let's not make that. It's not about what you had it do, right? If there was a thing, my crowdfunding project happened to be to get CryptPad onto S9. Yep. If my crowdfunding project was for my next door neighbor whose house burned down and I just wanted to raise funds for him, it would have been just as easy. It would have been just same thing. So what this makes me think of is a few years ago, Nicole Sauce realized she needed to upgrade her roasting shack for her coffee. Right. And she was going to do it on, you know, GoFundMe or whatever. And like literally because of what she was doing, every single one of them was a different type of pain in the ass. Yes. So she went out and got a WordPress plugin, tied it into her merchant account created her own yep. fundraising platform yep. and did fundraising f- and was dramatically successful with it, yep. raised all the money she needed, upgraded the roaster, the shack, everything, and could serve her customers better and pre-sold a bunch of her coffee, which was one of the the big issues that, it, it, you know, whoever had that, you know, you're pre-selling a food item or whatever, I, whatever. So she said, screw it. And she needed a thing done. And she said, I wonder if the people that support me would support me getting the thing done. And she put a way out for people to support her to get the thing done. And then the thing got done. What you're saying is if Nicole Sauce was running a Embassy Star 9 server right now, she could do this and do it all using the Lightning Network in Bitcoin. Yeah. And, and more importantly, you don't have to be Nicole Sauce and actually understand all that web stuff to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for me, that's the more important part of it, really. You know, literally with the BTC pay server crowdfunding, you could just set that up. If you didn't want to mess with Lightning, you could have it be just BTC only, so you could have your address that folks get sent to. Mm-hmm. And it's basically filling out a form and typing in the text that you want to put in. It, it's really very simple. And, again, the part about it that's most important is not that service, because if I go to GoFundMe, Kickstarter, any of those types of platforms – Creating that page there isn't that hard either. Yeah. It's on their server. I have to comply with their terms of service. 
if they don't like me because the product I want to sell doesn't match their particular ideology or the person that I want to help, whether it be truckers in Canada or whatever else in the United States or wherever else around the world, doesn't match their political ideology, they can say, we're just not going to do that, which is fine. That it's their platform, their choice. But this gives you the opportunity to have your own platform, to have your own printing press, to be your own server, to do your own thing. And that's where this is really nice. Yeah, and there's like there's things that you would think are really not that bad, but you couldn't get on those. Bad's not the right word. That not that controversial, but you wouldn't be able to get on to a GoFundMe or whatever. Here, here's an example. So back in the '90s, when the Yugoslavian SKSs came into the market, you could go buy three of them for like 200 bucks, right? And they were brand new, wrapped in cosmoline paper. And there was a guy on a. This is how old this is on a Yahoo list. That was part of an SKS group, and he built us a, a rear site. You pop the pin out on the back of the SK, you pop this thing, and it was a site that looked exactly like the site on an M1 Garant. Oh, and then you removed that stupid elevated site in the center, and then with the hooded front site, it was a beautiful site picture, and it was pretty damn accurate considering what you were putting it on. Right, you're putting it on a a 70 year old Yugoslavian SKS, so it held zero really well. He sold a bunch of them, and then, as people tend to do at times, he died. So this product doesn't exist. It's not around anymore. He was like a little machine guy making them in his little machine shop mm-hmm. in his garage. You ordered one. It took like three months to get one. He made them when he could. <laughs> if somebody wanted to make that product today, it's a completely valid product. It's not a firearm. Yeah. It is not something you would use to build a firearm under Brandon's new restrictions or anything like that. Yeah. It is a piece of metal that can be used as a site or a paperweight. Right. If, I guarantee you, if you put on any of the mainstream platforms today, they would say this is firearms-related content and not acceptable. Right. But you could do it tomorrow morning using BT, BTC Pay Server. Yeah. That's really powerful. Another thing that I think people might care about um, is privacy, again, and being able to conduct messaging with their friends and family. Yes. So can you tell us about Cups Messenger, what that is, and, and how – if you're smart enough to use the Start 9, your your brother-in-law that you want to have private communications with doesn't have to be. Right. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's actually really neat. Um, on the Start 9 server, it gives you, there's a number of other options that you have for communicating. So the one that you mentioned was CUPS. Um, so the part that's – so there's a couple. There's, there's CUPS. There's Burn After Reading. There's Mastodon. There's Sphinx Chat. Um, there's also Matrix Servers where you can run your own um, uh, Synapse server on that. The idea on all of them, though, is just this. It runs on your server, so you're the one with the control. One of the challenges, even if you believe, and, you know, it's reasonably whatever else, that something like Signal, that it is end-to-end encrypted, that there are no backdoors and all the rest of that, but at some level... It's still going through all of the routers, through their servers, through everything else as well. And so there's still some level of concern about that. What are they doing? How does that all work? How are, their, are their servers all really good and all the rest of that? Again, what this lets you do is run everything on your particular server. So you can connect into your server. You can have your friend connect into your same server and exchange those messages, and it never has to go anywhere else from that perspective. That, that that connection can be 
um, encrypted from them to your server, from you to that server, and not exposed anywhere else. And so there's a number of different communication paths that are offered. Right now, none of them are hugely popular in the, in the scheme of things right now. I keep hoping that eventually they will get better and more popular, but yeah. it really just isn't there yet. That, that adoption just hasn't really broken out yet. Well, and like I said, there is just a ton of stuff. I mean, the, the, the pure volume so of what, services. One of the other ones we haven't talked about okay. is a service called Embassy Pages. Okay. So if you want to host your own web server, your own web pages, you can write your own HTML web pages. And, and again, you don't have to like be a programmer coding in HTML. You can create a document in Microsoft Word and just do save as HTML. And yeah. if you do that, now you get this HTML file, you load it up on your Embassy OS, and bam, you now have your web page available out there. So you can do that, and it's hosted on your server. You don't have to worry about anybody else shutting you down or anything else like that. So, again, it makes all of that stuff really, really easy. The other thing that's a recent addition that's been added is running your own Git server, G-I-T. So this is if you want to... Um, do software version control, basically. So when you create, when you write code for Bitcoin, for example, um, the way that it's hosted right now, there's a Git server. Um, GitHub, which is the main one that's used by many, many people all around the world, was actually bought by Microsoft, which is a problem. So, but that's one of the main places that people go, and it allows you to have a whole bunch of different developers work together on a particular software project, and they can create issues, they can fix issues, they can, you know, hey, here's a proposed change, and coordinate all their stuff together. It becomes a problem, and we saw this recently with, uh, you're familiar, obviously, with Tornado Cash. I'm not sure yeah. what the listeners are. I'm not but, real familiar with it, but I get the basics, and I know what happened, that it ain't good. <laughs> so, so for the folks who are not familiar with it, basically, Tornado Cash was a software contract on Ethereum that allowed you to do some mixing services. It was a privacy enhancement so that you could be more private with how you're doing your crypto transactions in that environment. And um, OFAC, the Office for Foreign Asset Control, something, I'm not sure what it is, U.S. government agency decided. An alphabet agency of, of the Yeah, day. just decided that this particular stuff was being used for evil. And I don't recall which particular terrorist group they, they uh, connected it to, but they said, you can't do this. And with very little direction about, so what do we do? What is our obligation? They just said, this is bad, and you can get in trouble if you do anything with this. Yeah. Everybody in that community was left going, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And what wound up happening was Microsoft said, hmm, yeah, I don't know about this thing, but it seems like it's on the OFAC list, so we're going to delete the Tornado Cash GitHub Git out of GitHub and deleted it. If I recall correctly, I think the developer, the main primary developer involved in it, was actually arrested. Hmm. So one of the things that a lot of folks in the free open source software movement did was they said, we need to get out of GitHub being the only place that people put their code. So one of the great things about MCOS now is you can run this Git server and you can go to GitHub, go to wherever else, download whatever that software is, and then re-upload it to your server so you've got your own personal copy. Now, 
for most people listening, you're not going to do this. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't really care. But the fact that you can, and for the people that want to do this, that they can do this on their own server and make it available to other people is a big deal. This is part of that whole censorship resistance piece. There you go. That's the service that's offered. Yeah, it, it's 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 really like it's one of those things that you should care about it, even if you're personally never going to use it. Like I'll be having conversations with somebody sometimes like, well, here's our GitHub. And I'm like, yeah, that's great for you. I don't I don't care personally. I'm not digging your GitHub. I'm not reading your developer notes like that's not me. That's not my world. I don't care. But I do care. I care because the fact that it's publicly available and you said it's open source and you said it's not going to like download all my information and send it to the FBI or something that there are literally people who are top programmer type people and they live to catch somebody their whole, like they're going to make their reputation as the guy that found the back door in the app that said it was for tracking kitties online and telling you which kitty was the prettiest kitty. And it was actually designed to rat you out to the NSA or whatever. Like that's their whole, they want one. And they'll tear through this code. And because that code can be torn through, generally there's not much to be found because woe to the person that it is found with. Like, and then all the developers are known that built it. And so it's not just that this uh, anti-kitty you know, app uh, was bad. No, 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 no. All these people are bad and they are forever demerited and they will forever be known among the, the coder and hacker space as evil. Right. Like that. There's an honesty that's kept because anybody can tear apart the code and see, does it do what it says it does? You know, that's when when I started pushing brave people like, but it actually is Chrome. I'm sorry. That's not how that works. Right. That's not how that works. It's using the Chromium base source, but it's its own thing. Uh, you know, and what will you use? I can't remember what it's called now, but Gab has their own uh, yeah. uh, browser. Like it's that's built on the Chromium base too, right? Like it it allows somebody to be able to grab this thing and then do something else with it and do it with confidence that it's not going to screw them. There, there's a great Twitter thread I was reading where somebody was asking, "Well, how do you know that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin? How do you know that?" And the response was. Here's the four lines of code. Here's the routine that says, here's how we calculate what the emission schedule is. And I don't have to dig through all that code. The fact that somebody else could do that and verify it. And if I didn't trust them knowing what I'm looking for and a little bit of technical, technical knowledge on my side, I could go dig, dig that out without being, you know, again, a guru programmer, just, yeah, whatever. I, I can dig that out knowing what I'm supposed to look for and verify that that's correct. So is this this service? Let me bring it back up again, real quick. Is yeah. this basically then like a decentralized GitHub? Yeah, it's it's basically you running your own version of GitHub on your own server. So I would, if I was a developer or a project team, we would create this page and it would be available. But then, how would people find it? Like everybody knows GitHub, right? You'd, like you'd, have, you'd, have, to, you'd have to send an invite. That's really okay. what it is. Okay. But again, the point of the point of this primarily is this allows you to run your own server. This is not a we're going to advertise everywhere that anyone who wants to can use your server. You got to do that advertising if you want to do that. This is a you got your own server. If you want to run your own departmental server and you don't want to pay GitHub for all of their features that your developers can all use that stuff with all of those extra features. Mm-hmm. 
right? Because you want to keep it private. Well, you can run your own server, run your own Git server. But if you don't want to do the work required to run your own Git server, to spin up the server, to install the software, to run all that stuff, point and click, make it easy, that's what the Embassy OS part does for you. It allows you to focus on the work that you actually want to do, not the overhead of running the server to get to the services you really want. You know, we've been talking a lot about the things that Start9 does today, but I think it's interesting to look at what it could do eventually and what this technology, right, could do eventually. There's there's almost unlimited potential here, and I have some questions, uh, Start, but I want to use this question for this piece because I think it's perfectly uh, – here, here it is. Okay. So, Preptive Ventures, what do you think the long-term future of decentralized technology adoption? Will it always be a minority who tries to protect their data, or will the average Joe uh, Joe buy, be able to start to care? Um, see, I think that, like, it, the more it can do and the easier it can do it for you, the more people we would call average Joes will use it. And so, like, we talked about kind of a comparison to a smartphone. Right before. So I remember very clearly when malls were still a thing and I would be walking around the mall with my wife and Radio Shack got into the cell phone business. And I didn't even have a pager yet because my employer hadn't made me get one yet. Right. And I remember the guy going, hey, would you like to hear about a cell phone? And I'm like, no, I don't want anybody to bother me. I have a phone at home. You can leave a message on my answering machine. And it seemed like cell phones were like for rich, pretentious assholes. Right. Well, now, like, I do a tremendous amount of my business with this device. Certainly. I create a bunch of content with this device. I interact with my my customers and not just, hello, welcome to the Survival Podcast. I actually do things like, you know, engage on social media, which I also thought was stupid when it started. When, when Twitter started for us, I was like, who the hell needs Twitter? I have email. Which, you know, it didn't make any sense to me. And that was back when you need an invite to get into Twitter. So I think that, like, one of the things that people struggle with with Bitcoin, for instance, is how early we still are. And when we start looking at something like Start9 servers, we're way early. Very, very early. Way early. Way yeah. early. But I think if, you're, if your family realizes you could set up group texting amongst your family, for instance, that would be yeah. completely private, but they don't have to do anything other than install an app. No, they've got an app. That's where it starts to change, right? That's where it starts to really take over. And so then you start needing per family, per neighborhood, per community, per group. Small business. Or small business, one person. It's like your your admin. But their job is incredibly easy compared to being an admin for a regular, you know, small business. If you're running SharePoint and MS Office on a hundred different desktops or whatever and climbing up. You don't need to be a full time IT guy. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think like, Embassy is coming, Start9 is coming out with like new, like bigger, more robust servers. Yeah. It's like a a couple thousand bucks or something, but basically you could, you could run tech for a group. Like we always talk about having groups in private communities and all. Like Mm -hmm. this is, so wouldn't it, there's a perfect use case scenario, right? So I hear a lot of people talking about private membership organizations to get around the state. But then what, what ends up happening is it's what they say publicly that gets the private membership organization in trouble, right? Like, and, and there's I, I need to get a lawyer to come on that's updated on the latest with these things because I'm hearing people say something and going, I'm pretty sure I heard the guy that made this popular say I, he went to prison for that. 
So let's be careful there. But if you are going to have a private members organization, then should not the communication among the private members be truly private? Sure. Right. And then part of your membership is you get this app, not you, 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 you just get the app. You get to have this app and you get to have access. That's part of being a private member. And now your communications really are end to end digitally encrypted. But to the person communicating, it's just a messenger. The client side, what the person actually interacts with, yeah. is just another app on their phone, you know, a program on their desktop, a web page on the whatever, whatever it is. The difference is who runs the server. That's what the difference is. Is it run by Jeff Bezos and Amazon Cloud and the Google Cloud, the Microsoft Cloud, Oracle Cloud, whatever else, or is it run in your house on your hardware under your control? That's the difference. Yeah. And it, it, what also makes me think of is like, you know, things like Telegram have encrypted chat if you enable it. Like right. I'll start a, a, a encrypted chat with Jesse. That's encrypted. It, it is what it is. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but <laughs> it, at least it's purported to be. And right. then people say, well, but we can't do encrypted chat when we're doing a group chat. Well, I, I don't recommend that right. because you don't know who joined that group. Right. right. You don't know who you're talking to. You could be talking to all the feds, right? But if you had a private membership organization, the ability to control access would actually be really valid because only an approved member would be able to be granted access. Exactly. So you've, got the, you've got the server. You decide who gets access. So now you could have something where a, 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 the, the head of the group, like me, for instance, if we were doing raw milk in a state where it's illegal – and we wanted to say we have some raw milk available. We can actually broadcast that or more accurately narrow cast that right. to just our group and have that actually be encrypted. Yeah. Where if you use Telegram Messenger for that, you know, maybe the next thing you know, the FDA is fast roping into your cows. And people say that's that's hyperbole. I have the guys from Baker's Green Acres coming on in a couple of weeks on, on TSP, and I'm, you'll I'm hear sure. that it's not hyperbole. That I, that's I, I've it's heard actually. it's a very good soil amendment. Yeah, it is. Raw milk is a great soil amendment. We have lots of soil amendment available right now at refrigerated temperature, so it will be fast as pos- as fresh as possible when you yes. apply it. But, you know, there, there is an advantage to being able to do that. I think there's a lot of things that we talk about doing that we may end up having, like, public and private versions of. And I think that, like, an embassy server would excel at the private side. So we've talked about, like, I, I guess you've heard us talk about, the, the like, the competitor to the Waze app. Sure, absolutely. Rat out the cops and all. Yeah, we talked about that the last time I was on for a little bit as well. Yeah. Yeah, but you might have something that's more like a freedom cell that's very, very local that does things like that within its own little space, and that you would probably prefer to be a little bit more, you know, private. You know, I, there was a thing called Cell 411. I'm not sure if it's still around anymore. It was in the App Store. It was designed for that, but, like, anybody could join so, like, if you were doing something that maybe the state doesn't like, not necessarily illegal, they just don't like forget, it. Forget about all the state side of things. Yeah. Because I understand that's a concern as well. Yeah. But it's also a neighborhood side of things. You know, if you're really into, I don't know, something very subversive and embarrassing like model trains, you may not want your next-door neighbor knowing that you play with little trains. Yeah. So it's not necessarily even a state thing. It's potentially you're a celebrity. You don't want, you know, whatever your little hobbies might be to be public knowledge. It's got, it's not, it's not always a, we're doing something illegal or whatever like that. It's just privacy is a basic human right. 
You know, I, there are things about my life that I just assume not have the whole world know. And it's not that it's illegal. It's not that it's immoral. It's not that whatever. It's just, it's none of your damn business, right? It's not your business. Yeah. And, and nothing is, nothing is anybody's business unless I specifically want it to be their business. Like one of the things I keep trying to explain that the real conflict that we have right now in, in the world, but especially in the Western world is there's no more fundamental human right than the right to be left alone. It is the most fundamental right that any yes. individual human has is simply the right to be left alone. We and and what we have is a system because you're right. It's not. When I say the state. I'm I'm because of where I'm at intellectually with this now. When I say the state, I include Microsoft, right? Oh, I am talking about the whole apparatus of of, of everything: sure. the technocracy, the oligarchy, the the formalized state, and the form of the government. All of it together um, has said very loudly and very clearly. We will not leave you alone. And when you get into that level of conflict, the, the resolution usually is eventually the people that are tired of not being left alone get very angry and become very violent and heads roll. And you never know how it's going to work out. But what you do know is the apparatus that's, that's, that's causing this this time is way better at violence than all the people that just want to be left alone. The only other resolution, because you'll never get to the point where, like, okay, you don't have to leave me alone. Like, there's a point, like, the average person is like, no. I don't want this anymore, is to use technology to render the attempt to not leave you alone obsolete. This, this, right? and, this is, and this is an option to opt out from big tech. And this circles all the way back to where we started our whole conversation. Why did I get started with this? I wanted to opt out of big tech. And to be clear, it's not to say that I don't use some of their services sometimes. I do. But now at least I have an option. I've got an alternative that I don't have to use them all the time for everything. I can pick and choose what I want to use that for, what do I want to use my own server for, and censorship resistance. If I do it on my server, nobody else has any control on that. It's all on me. Yeah, and a lot of times the fact that you could means that you don't have to. I talk yes. about this in Bitcoin yes. all the time. Exactly. The reason that I don't have to go nuclear and, and move to another country and use 12 words to pull my Bitcoin into that place and access it from there is because I can. Like, it's very hard to stop something that's just simply some information. Be because so, I can do, because I can do it, it's harder yeah. for the system yeah. to crack down on all that stuff. And therefore, maybe I don't actually have to do that. Exactly. Right. We, you don't have to push the nuclear button because there is a nuclear button is the, right. the type of thing. Like, and they can feign stupidity, but the people that run the world are not stupid. Right. They're not right. There's, they didn't get there by being stupid. So they do understand. And I think it's why they've only pushed so hard with this because, well, you saw it when China, China banned Bitcoin for like the 800th time. And this time they actually sort of kind of meant it. And all that happened is all the Bitcoin mining just moved. And in three months, the hash rate was higher than it ever was in the history of hash rate. And all they did was force all the innovation money and stuff out. And yet there's still like an ass load of Bitcoin mining going on in China. Right? After the say, there's again. still a bunch that's still going on, even with the officially being banned. Yes. So that's like a great use case for any state or oligarch looking at it like, oh, so actually they can just still do what they want. So then maybe this is not the area to push. And, and, you know, you see it with things like 3D printing as well. And like, we'll ban this gun. Well, and you got ghost guns guy, ghost gunner guy going, well, we'll print that. We'll print that. Well, you know, you know what a CNC machine is? Oh, look at this. Here's a gun with printed ammunition. 
How you like it uses electronics to fire? How you like that? And it, I think that guy's taking a risk, whoever he may be, honestly. But it, it is making a very salient point because for every guy like that that's public, there's thousands that are not. Right. And they can try all the fear campaign they want, but the, the whole point of this operation, to me, and it's part of what we're talking about, is to render them irrelevant in our lives as much as we can. And then, you know, I'll use YouTube to talk to people because people use YouTube to listen. There you go. But I don't have to. I don't have to. And there's more and more tech being built like that with, like, video streaming service that could be completely independent. You know, I... I It, it amazes me what I, you know, what you think could, could, or amazes me to just think about what could be done. And, and I think back to the question that started this, yeah. right? When say, will the average person do it? I think everybody has their thing. Oh, I want that thing. So it's a matter of, as these things are made available and then there's a shiny thing that that person wants. Well, once I have the box and I have the tech and the understanding of how to do it, Now, even though I didn't think I wanted fully encrypted messaging, since all I have to do is click a button that says get yes. and then provide a place for my friends and family to log in to set up, to get it, uh, get the app and set up an account. Well, why, why wouldn't I? So that encrypted messaging was never a big enough carrot. But when the carrot comes, well, you might as well eat the whole bowl of soup. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like I said, when I first looked at it, I was looking at it really from a file manager standpoint. And a little bit on the Bitwarden piece. And then between the time that I bought it, the time that it arrived, I decided I was going to do the Bitcoin and Lightning. Yeah. And, I, you know, and it just, once, once you've got it, oh, there's this other service. Let me, let me try that too. And the part about it that's really amazing is it's, it's, it's not easy. Like the person who had the comment before about this all technical way over my head. Yeah. It's not easy for a non-technical person to package a service. That's why when it came to CryptPad, I didn't do it. Okay. But if you're a developer, it's not that hard to do from that side. So as a developer, if you're going, oh, I'm already doing this stuff, I'm building it with Docker, I'm doing it this way, blah, 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 yeah. I'm using GitHub, all the, you know, whatever else. Oh, I'm just going to create an S9PK, a Start9 package for it also. That incremental amount of work is not that much. It's like, say, you, I'm going to build an app for, for the Android store. Well, I'm going to make it work for iOS too. It's a, yeah, except that Android and iOS are so different. It's really hard okay. to do that. So it's actually it's, easier. It's, it's, it's actually it's, easier. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, it's much more like saying, Oh, I created this iPad app. I will set the configurations and settings. So it would also work okay on an iPhone. It's much more at that level type of a stuff. Mm. Now, you know, the it, reason why that's great is because we're not restricted to just what Matt Hill and the Start9 crew say, hey, let's do this. Anyone who wants to package a service can package their own service. And if they want to just, you know, put it out on Telegram, hey, I got the service that does whatever, they can just do that. And anybody else with an MCOS can download that file, bring it on their side, and run it. Now, if it's a really cool one, Like CryptPad, <laughs> they should talk to Matt Hill and say, hey, we've got this whole thing together. Would you mind putting it in your marketplace so that more folks can see it easily? But you're not restricted by just that marketplace. It's possible to connect to other marketplaces. There's a whole marketplace API. You can build a separate marketplace, have your own thing. 
So why that's great is it means that maybe not next week, but over the next weeks to months to years, there's a whole bunch of other services that can be relatively easily added for what you can do on your embassy OS, and it's not restricted to just what the Start 9 crew can do. So on, on the wish list where people have said, hey, could somebody package this up for me? There have been things like CoinJoin services. So if you want to do like your own mixing and run that service on your own server, that's something that folks have asked for, for Tor relays, for onion routing type of stuff. IPFS, interplanetary file system, doing distributed BitTorrent type of work. That's been requested. Email servers, um, NextCloud type of stuff where you're doing, um, like we talked before, Lotus Notes and SharePoint type of thing, having a departmental group server type setup all in one package. All of those have been requested, and that's the type of stuff that can relatively easily be added in because those packages already exist they're already in GitHub. All you got to do is package them for Embassy OS, mm. and they're good to go. Sounds like an entire profession waiting to happen, packaging for Embassy OS, right? And, and it also sounds goal, like a way... The goal and the hope is that at some point, somebody who's writing these different servers and writing these different services would say, hey, I'd like folks in Embassy OS to just be able to run my stuff. So as part of writing it, in addition to just giving a .exe to run on Windows and a .whatever to run on a Mac or an um, iOS app and an Android app, they'll just, as part of their packaging, they'll create a Start9 package, and it'll be built in from the original developer. And do you see that maybe we could end up at a point where we have, like, I have my network group, let's call it, but then this guy has his network this guy has his network group, this guy... And so we have like a service that we're running that we're running for our own little collective, but then we could federate all of them across all of those servers and have more like a, a typical use of an app that we think of getting out of the app store right now where you would have broader participation because network effect is directly affected by how many people are using a network. So if you wanted to build an app that is the, the, the ways competitor I talked about, I, I, I see that only lasting for so long before Apple and Google say, no, you can't do that. But right. if you can create a way, like as long as I can access my server, I can tie into that network effect and we could have, you know, a tipping generation app like Fountain for podcasting, but for road hazards, right? And mm -hmm. that's, maybe it should be called roadhazard.io or something like that because when I, I did get pulled over one time by a cop for doing nothing wrong except flashing lights and ratting his buddy out. Right. And he asked me why I was flashing my lights, and I said there was a road hazard down the road. And he said, what's go. the road hazard? I said, there's a guy down there pointing a gun at every car that comes by. I consider that to be a hazard. He didn't like it, but there wasn't anything he, there wasn't anything he could do about it. He begrudgingly told me to go on my way eventually, you know. Right. I'm like, what are you pulling me over for? Well, I thought there was a problem. No, you didn't. You know full well what I'm doing. I know full well what I'm doing, but I'm. I, there's a guy down there. He's got a gun. He's got a taser. He's got handcuffs. You know, he could hurt somebody. I don't know. Like, and I thought, I my wife said, you know what you should have told him? You should have told him you were helping with, with, with controlling speed. There but I thought it would be safer if everybody slowed down. That's why you're really there, right, for our safety. So I was helping. I, I did read an article at some point from a while back that it said that a lot of the police officers, police departments, were not upset at the um, ways and other type of apps that pointed out cop positions, specifically because it did bring the speed down which was, you know, their main goal anyway. So if they can bring it down that way, even better. Yeah. 
Yeah. And when you see somebody flashing lights, you should slow down. Right? Like, like not just because you might get a ticket. You don't know why somebody's flashing lights. So not that long ago, I flashed lights because a guy's truck dumped a whole shitload of stuff on the road. And it was like kind of around a blind curve. And I'm flashing everybody that's coming because I want people to slow down until they get that shit cleared out. I don't want somebody to get run over trying to, like, they dropped, like, one of the big wire racks, right. like, like a bakery rack or something like that, a bunch of other shit on the road. So, guys, if you see somebody flash the lights, slow the hell down, right? Like, anyway, um, let's keep going here. Um, you've used the word a bunch. Can you talk about what it is and why it's important? And that is open source and, more specifically, free and open source software. Yeah, so, so the idea on this basically is to have software that runs – that you can actually check the code. And as we said before, it's not that you personally are going to check every line of code, whatever, but it's open for other people to verify it. So even if you're not a coder, somebody else can verify. And by it being open that way, one of the key things that it does is it gives you the ability to have some confidence that there's no back doors in it. Hmm. One of the things about this is sometimes it's not even a malicious bug that might be in there. It's just not that somebody's trying to do something You know, they just coded it. They used this particular routine. It seemed to make sense at the time. Somebody else goes through the code. They go, you know, in this particular edge case, if it's this and this and this in your code, you might expose some data. Somebody else can see it and say, hey, here's a patch. Here's a fix, whatever for that. And you can get some community participation in it. And by doing it that way, it becomes much, much secure. There's a, um, uh, a phrase, whatever, in the uh, cryptography community. You know, security by obscurity. Mm-hmm. Well, nobody knows how we do it, therefore it's secure. Well, yeah, yeah but if somebody, Until somebody figures it out, it, it's not so secure. Yeah, if you can publish your algorithm and say this is how we do our security, and people still can't break it, then you know you got a pretty decent algorithm. When you put your code out there and give an opportunity for other people to hack into it and say, "Hey, this is what we're running. This is whatever else," and they can't break it, that gives you a lot more confidence that your stuff is better. So there's a lot of advantage to all of that. It also gives you the advantage because sometimes the people, person, company, whatever, who's originally running a project stops. They go out of business, they get tired, Mm. they find other things of interest, whatever else. If you're running proprietary software, you're stuck. That company gives up. There's nothing else you can do. You just can't run it anymore. There's a, uh, a game I used to play on my old Win95 machine. Now, you know, not the greatest of games by today's standards, by any means, but I liked it. Yeah, and I, I got can't it. run it. I can't run it on Windows 10 anymore. It just doesn't go. The developer who does it just doesn't support it. Yeah, and I have really no options. There's nothing I can do about it, and it's yeah. not really a big deal for me. I, it's one of those things I just write off. But for the sake of argument, if it were open source, if I could go out there and say, "Oh, I see exactly what he did," either I or I could pay somebody, whatever, could potentially update it for the latest operating systems, everything else like that. You also, with this, have the ability to fork something. So fork is when you take a bunch of code and you split it off to go in a different direction. So, for example, if the code is headed in this particular direction, you go, I like that basic code, but I need this other feature set that I understand it doesn't fit for the company and their mission, but it's what I need and what I want. If it's free and open source software, you can start with that base Take a copy of that, start from that base, and start building something else entirely and take advantage of what's there and build your own piece. 
the like the Dissenter or Brave browser built off the Chromium, right? That's a yeah. perfect example, yeah. right? For the features that you care about. And sometimes the part that you break off might become much, much bigger, more popular than the, the other part, and you become the dominant player, perhaps. The or it might serve a smaller market, but a very passionate market segment that will defend that, that particular Absolutely split. could be. The yeah. other piece about this is that it becomes censorship resistance. So you, if, it's, if you put your code out in a free and open source type of a setup, and China says, we ban Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, okay, okay maybe in China without a VPN, I can't download the source code from GitHub, which is run by Microsoft. Yeah. That code is out there. It can be out there in a whole bunch of different places. And all I got to do is get that source code. I can compile it myself, write it down, and I can run whatever. And if I need yeah. to run it slightly differently, I can tweak it for what I need it to do to be my side. So it's yeah. very, very difficult for a single state actor to stop your use of this particular technology. It becomes censorship resistance because it's out there. Anyone can do it. So it also prevents, you know, forced updates. So fortunately, Sony hasn't done this, but I'm using a ver- – I don't even know what the latest version of Vegas is. I have nine. They updated to ten. I paid for it. <coughs> I downloaded it. They decided that it was no longer necessary, since they're primarily a video uh, editing uh, software, what? to be able to encode at the 32 kbps that I record that I encode at, which is FM quality radio. So for a podcast, that's plenty. Yeah, so, absolutely. So they, they would require me to encode at 64, which would double the size of my already large files and because my listeners. So fortunately, I was able to just simply open up version 9 and keep using it. Some of the software that's out there now, you buy a license and you will stay licensed, like you buy it for life. But when the upgrade comes, they literally make you do it. Now, from a security standpoint, since they have so many holes in their security, I can understand that. But there is no security risk for audio video editing software, right? There's no need to be forced. But it doesn't mean that had I not bought in at a different time that I might not be forced to upgrade. Or they just decide, like, we know you paid for this, but unless you pay for the new one, we're going to turn the old one off. Where if it's free open source software, if I want to keep using something that's 10 years old, I can. And, again, there's a perfect example of why you might want to. I think I upgraded to 10 back in, like, 2014 or 2013 or something like that, and immediately it was like, no. Right, well, why? Like, it's not because I'm cheap. I was willing to pay for it. I did. But as soon as I saw that, I'm like, this doesn't work for me. The the goal of Embassy OS is to give you the option to run what you want to run. That's the goal. If if you th- if somebody out there wants to get an Embassy server, what do you think their their, their best options are right now? And like, I, I'm going to bring your site up here in a minute because um, you do help people onboard to Bitcoin and all. Do you help yeah. people onboard to using a server? <laughs> um, I've actually helped people onboard with Start9 specifically. I've had people okay. who said, hey, I want to run a Bitcoin node, a Lightning node, but I really don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of running the server and everything else that they have to do. Yeah. So <clears throat> if you want to run an embassy OS server, really the first part we want to start is why are you doing it? What do you want to do? If you're a project person, you're like, oh, I love Raspberry Pi. I've done all of these home automation tools and whatever else. Great. Get an old Raspberry Pi, buy a new one, whatever, download the software, set it all up, do, do all that magic. If you just want to run the server, the easiest thing to do is just buy it from them. 
there's a bit of a premium. It costs a little bit more to do it that way. But you get a box that you take it out, you plug it in, and it works. If you'd rather do the kit form and buy all the pieces and put it together yourself, you can absolutely do that. And it will cost you a little bit less. Um, there's a lot of people I've seen in some of the Telegram groups and stuff where they're like, oh, you should never pay that much. They overcharge and all of that. And I'm like, yeah, but then you got to do the work. Then you got to do the work. If you've got that technical knowledge and you want to do that, sure. But if you really want to run the service, it's really may not be worth your effort, to be honest, to do that. People like that drive me nuts because do you think the parts of your car cost what you paid for your car? Do you think all the parts that went into building your house cost the price of your house? Do you think all of the parts that went into building this microphone right here cost the microphone? Like there is a cost associated with somebody else doing a thing for you. Putting it all together. And it overpriced is such a subjective term. Like, it's easy to say that when you're not Matt Hill paying the labor that's doing the work and signing, you know, the actual front side of a paycheck. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the change your whole perspective. You sign the front side of a paycheck, everything changes in your world. So, so most of the stuff in my side hustle that I do is teaching people about crypto. But okay. to your point, I've had people who said, yeah, I want to run a Bitcoin node. I want to run a Lightning node. And if they are not folks who really want to, hey, I want to run a server. And I want to download Linux. I want to run it on this old hardware. I want to do all that sort of stuff. Really, point, click, run. The easiest thing to do is embassy. It allows you to focus on just running, how do I run a node, and not worry about all the other stuff. So I've done a lot of that as well. Agreed. I think the other thing people should do is make sure you're an MSB member. Oh, thank you. Get your stupid high discount because just on the base embassy server, um, you'll save like three, you get like three times your money back instantly. I I think it was three years. Yeah. I think it was three years worth of savings, and that's just on the base one, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's basically makes my membership free and you get all your other stuff. So definitely, if you, even if you think I'm a jerk, uh, you, you should you're, still. You're my start nine server, join MSB first. Because it's dumb if you don't. I mean, it's just that yes. you hate money, and we we try to teach people around here not to hate money. Let's take a few questions and then we can wrap up. Yeah. Oh, no wonder it looks like so many. I'm on the wrong screen. All right. <laughs> Let's see all the comments, not just question ones. Uh, Rachel says, are de-Googled phones and computers as secure as the belief, or is it all in the servers? <laughs> it depends. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I this, but this is a great question, right? This yeah. is a great question. And, and it brings up reality, which is you are not going to be a private person, really private person, unless you move to your own private island with no internet, no electric, no nothing, and you live entirely off the grid, don't talk to anybody else. Yeah. So it's a range. It's a range. You know, Jack, you mentioned before about when you're receiving payments on Bitcoin, well, you should always make sure to, like, use a new address. Well, that's, that's one step better than using the same address for everything. But even if you use a new address for every Bitcoin that you receive – there's a bunch of more privacy down the rabbit hole you can go. Yeah. That's true with everything. Correct. So it's not a black or white. Oh, this is private. This isn't. Oh, I got a de-Googled phone. Therefore, I'm private. A lot of it depends upon what do you run on that de-Googled phone? What servers do you connect to? So it's very much a spectrum and very much a range of things. So what I would say is you have to look at the trade-offs. What are you getting for it and what is it costing you? And how, you know, how, how much are you willing to give up? How, how much work do you want to do? 
how private do you really need to be? That's yeah. really what I would say. You got to like work on that. Going to D Google phone. Absolutely. That's going to make you one step better. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that answer. Same person. Rachel says, what would you recommend to be the first steps for someone who hasn't had Internet service for the last decade or so except cell service? Oh, get an ISP. <laughs> I've done I've, I've done a bunch because like you have been in the tech world. I mean, I did everything from uh, DSL and cable. Um, I actually um, ran some other higher speed business side way back when, when it was crazy expensive. In today's world, you know, if you're a cable provider, if your phone company, whatever, will give you a wired connection to your house, that's generally going to get you the best price point performance that you're going to get. To some extent, the cell services now, the hotspots, some of those will actually get you good enough performance that you can use that as your primary, even for your entire house. I mean, a lot of us have gotten very spoiled with cable modems and, you know, gigabit download speeds. But, you know, if you're not watching YouTube or Netflix videos all the time, sending emails, uploading downloading some files, you really may not need that much. Yeah. Um, I have to say, if I tether my iPhone to my laptop, I can do anything. I, I can do anything <laughs> that I would do on my network until I push it. So can I do this conference? Probably. If I was, if I have had a guest on, I have had my internet go down, I have tethered to my iPhone and I have come back into the conference and I have gone on and it may have been a little glitch here and there, but overall it worked. If I start trying to upload files the way that I do for my right. business, but most people aren't going to upload a, you know, a two hour audio file every day. Yeah. They're not going to, they're not going to upload multiple video files every day. They'll have to say now I, I don't actually upload video files anymore. StreamYard does it for me, but that's now we're back to a centralized ASP. I think like to me, I would say the value of having internet access exceeds any compromise in having internet access, in my opinion, having actual wired service to your home or WiMAX type service if you don't have that, or uh what's the space one that Elon does or something. Having something like that to me is incredibly valuable, but I also run a business. So it, I don't, I can't say I'm not jaded. I'd like to say I would feel the same way even if I didn't run an internet enabled business, but I, I don't know that I would. When we lived in Arkansas, I had a, a, a satellite internet at my house because I couldn't get anything else. Right. And um, I have to say I couldn't run a business on it, but watching YouTube videos, I might've had to adjust down at times to 480 or whatever and what have you, but it worked fine. But I would, I would say get the best, most affordable internet you can get. That's, that would be my first, cause I don't really understand the question any other way than that. <laughs> um, this is an interesting question and I think it's actually a great question. I think we sort of hit it, but we can do this anyway. Hunter said, will it break if I don't update it? <laughs> the short answer is no. No. <laughs> It's in, it's running, it's fine. If you don't want to update, don't do an update. It's really pretty straightforward on that. And then the next one here from Darren, this is an interesting question because I think the new embassy has its own drive. How reliable is the hard drive in a Star 9? I don't know because mine uses an external hard drive that plugs into a Raspberry Pi. Yeah, and and I actually bought the hard drive as part of the Star 9 package. Yeah. So, you know, here's, here's what I will tell you. It is and I don't recall the name brand, but it is a name brand drive that's a reasonable name. If I can remember the name of it, I'm sure you'd recognize it. 
Um, I'm sure Start9, when they looked at which drive they wanted to ship with their package, had something that was a reasonably high mean time between failure. Of all the different pieces of reliability, that's probably the lowest on my list of concerns about this thing. It's really. a Samsung T7 2 terabyte. Thank you. There you go. Same. Right. Um, I would put it this way. First of all, SSD drives are incredibly reliable um, anyway. They, they just are. Um, that's why we use them in things like this. That's why we're not using a spinning drive in, in, in an ongoing, nonstop, updating, time-critical service situation. The other thing I would say is, so the old model where you plugged in a hard drive, was was something that if the hard drive failed was very easy for the user to do something about, right? You, you have data there, but you could just ins- so this would. We, we need, we need I wouldn't think about, that we would be- talk about that at all. But if I could just jump in real quick on this, yeah, because it's a great point. One of the things that I do with my Start9 server is I actually back it up on a regular basis. Yeah, and in my case, I back it up to my desktop computer, but with that backup. If my Start9 server were to, you know, somebody were to walk, my kid walked off of it or, you know, poured a bunch of water on it, whatever it was, the whole thing died. If the hard drive died, I can recover right from that very easily as well. I have to get a new Start9 server, but I could just do restore backup, and I'm good to go on that as well. Matt, yeah, I knew he's talked about in the future, being yeah. backed up from one Start9 server to another. Yes, yeah, so which I think is very cool. Set, but I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. I think yeah. that changes everything because that's then I can just locate place. one. I can tell my brother-in-law, look, dude, you don't have to do nothing. I'm going to come plug this thing and just don't touch it. And, and all that cool shit I let you do, it's how you do that. And then I have – the big thing is I have kind of my own version of Carbonite. Yeah. Yeah. I have the data in two different locations. The, if my house and my brother-in-law's house are both destroyed on the same day, there was a giant mushroom cap cloud over Dallas-Fort Worth. We're all dead anyway, and the last thing I'm worried about is my data at that point because I'm dead. I don't need my data. I'm dead. Everybody I know around me is dead. It's over. Like there, I guess there's a very small chance that both of our houses could completely separately burn down, but it's not likely, and I should probably have enough time to recover my data. Right. Plus, now my data is accessible. Now I can go down to the Internet Cafe, and I can get all my data off my brother-in-law's server that's really my server. My nine-to-five job, I work for an enterprise software company. I manage cloud deployments. Every single one of our deployments has a primary data center and a disaster recovery data center. And those are deliberately, on purpose, not located anywhere close to each other. And what they're 9-11, we had a bunch of data centers in Manhattan. Yeah. A backup data center in New Jersey. And after 9-11, a lot of folks are like, yeah, that, that is just too close. This would allow me, for my embassy OS server... To have mine here and mine and my buddies in Florida. I think what eventually will happen is we'll have the ability to back up to each other's servers without seeing each other's data. And exactly. to, to basically compartmentalize that data into different locations and maybe even earn some money by providing storage space. If I, if I right. offer my storage space to you to back up your server, you can tell yeah. me a couple stats and vice versa. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Or I can actually back up to like, you take it like uh, like Napster used to work or LimeWire or something. It backs up in fraction, but each fraction is on at least three or four different devices, Absolutely. so it can always be reassembled, even if somebody turns off their their machine and I can't access their machine. And yeah. then you start to 
this is where I started. It's like, this is us becoming the Terminator instead of the machines becoming the Terminator, where you try to break it apart and it just re, it just reconstitutes itself. And, and this is literally rendering them, whoever they are, irrelevant. Uh, Rachel said, why don't these get more traffic? This is important. So like, we have like 32 people on the live stream. I was on with John and Nicole this morning and we had like 250. And we were talking about just random prepper shit, right? And I think it's because a lot of people do feel uh, the way that one of the other commenters feels earlier, like this is over their head or anything. I also don't think that people realize how important this is. So this is a great prepping topic. And in some respects, it's kind of a shame that it's on the Bitcoin breakout day. Yeah. Because this has nothing really to do with Bitcoin. This is a prepping topic. This is how do you protect your data? How do you protect your privacy? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's something that people – but you know what? If we did it on a different day, it wouldn't matter. People are the same way. I can tell you that the tech stuff is the, the thing that my audience is the most ambivalent about. And I think it, it's what I call 66-year-old farmer syndrome. So when you try to teach uh, farming – to the, yeah. the, the existing industrial agriculture system in America, the average farmer is 66 years old. They're like, dude, I'm just trying to get through the day without my prostate exploding and not losing my farm. I got, I got, I got five years. I don't have five years. I'll make it through. I don't care. I don't have any time for your newfangled bullshit. And I think that there's a lot of people with tech that we talk about it like it's like something new. But the tech most people are using has been with us, like I said, 15, 20 years now. That's why, again, this device comes with a, a user manual. Nobody reads it. Well, no, the, user, the user manual, for the most part, is just... It's now in the phone. Like, How do you turn it on? Whatever. Yeah. After that point, like once it's yeah. on, yeah, there's, there's almost nothing about it. All the rest of it's actually a, you know, a Kindle PDF document that's in the phone itself. Yeah. 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 So let's see. Uh, Ari covered that one. We talked about that from Prep to Adventure. Uh, Hunter says, seems like it would limit donations to crypto. He's talking about the uh, BT pay ser- BTC pay yeah, server. Let's, let's talk about that a bit because that's a great point. So, yeah. number one, yes. Sort of. Uh, the, <laughs> yes, you're right. But on the other hand, really when I was doing this, if somebody had offered to send me a check in sure. the mail – I would have said, dude, can we just like get on the phone? Let me walk you through how you do, a, do Bitcoin. Let me teach you that. So you can yeah. send me Bitcoin instead because that's easier for me to receive. Yeah. So from my perspective, I only wanted to get Bitcoin anyway. But you're right. It is one of the limitations with this particular chunk is it's limited to crypto. On the other hand, if you want to go fiat, if you want to go USD, if you want to go euros or pounds or whatever else – there's so many WordPress plugins and other software and payment providers and third-party providers already yeah. that are happy to take your money and let you do fiat, and they'll work with you. You set up an account, all the rest of that. The but point I, of this yeah, is I'd say it's not, though. It, it's, not the, it's not the case, though. Like, it is not only crypto for the sender because if you're using the Strike app or Cash app, yeah. you can oh, send dollars to a Bitcoin address. Yeah, easy. The person never has to. So yes, it's crypto only on the receiving end, right? Right. Or it's Bitcoin only on the receiving end in this particular case. But the person like sending it. it never has to touch Bitcoin, which is great for them because there's no tax event for them. I'll actually go further than that. I'll go further than that. You don't even have to use a Strike app. If you use Cash app, which that's what I said. Strike or Cash app, either yeah. one. 
Yeah, but, but Strike right now is very niche. Bitcoin centric. Cash app, a lot of folks have used for a long time now just yeah. for, you know, US dollars. And yeah. the fact that they now support Lightning is awesome. You can put a little thing on there, how to, how to pay us in, with Cash App or Strike, right? And, and yeah. like, it's literally, you have dollars, you hit the little scanner thing, and you either scan the address or you copy and paste the address you hit send, and you never touch Bitcoin. And I'll tell you what, I use it yeah. all the time. If I go out and there's a somebody I'm buying from that takes Bitcoin, I yeah. want to pay them in Bitcoin. Absolutely. I do not want to pay them with my Bitcoin. So if I go to a restaurant and they like Bitcoin accepted here, I wait till I literally because it's so fast. I wait till the check comes. I figure out with tip, okay, yep. and I go deposit and straight off my PayPal debit card into Strike, yep. Yep. and then beep, and then boom, and I just paid in Bitcoin without touching Bitcoin. Right. And one of the big holdups we have is people rightfully do not want to send spend their Bitcoin, and and I understand that, but I want Bitcoin to be part of the economy. So if I can if I can basically convert I dollars Bitcoin, Bitcoin on somebody else's side, right, right, it's it's not up to me whether they keep it. So I know a lot of companies are basically doing orange washing. We accept yeah. Bitcoin because to them it's, it instantly converts a dollar. That's up to them. But that's but but you know what? From my perspective, that's okay too. That's the yeah. starting point. That's the starting point. Because um, at some point they might be like, some accountant might do his job and say, "Hey, boss, uh, I just did the numbers. Yeah. And um, yeah. if we had taken ten percent of our Bitcoin and left it as cash reserves in Bitcoin, um, this is how much money we would have." And he said, right? "Well, how much money do we have now? Well, that's why I'm here. Uh, we can't make payroll next week because <laughs> in small businesses." It happens. Like it it's does. not going to probably happen in Target or anything who will take Bitcoin, but you know Joe's Tire Shop or something. And I think another thing that we need to start encouraging more and more of our merchants to understand small businesses: if you take Bitcoin and you're public about it, there are people that will make a decision to do business with you. If I've got, if I've got two coffee shops, I'm walking down the street. There's two coffee shops, and one says we take Bitcoin, and one doesn't. There's no question which one I'm going into. And before striking Cash App, I didn't quite feel that way. I like to see it, but I wasn't going to spend my Bitcoin. I wasn't going to open Exodus. Uh, even, and, even, and, even, even then, I would have done it for me. Yeah. 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 A lot of people would. I, I got to admit, I wasn't that committed to the cause at the time. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do a $10 transaction and pay a $3 yeah. fee. I don't, I don't want to do that. Lightning changed that, but it's still my Bitcoin. But now that I can like literally say how much? Buy more Bitcoin and then use that to whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's so well, easy. I will tell you, one of the other things that I just started as a new product on my website is a do-it-yourself Bitcoin gift kit. Okay. And it's basically a templated gift certificate that you can give to somebody else okay. with Bitcoin. Okay. And what I did for it is I got detailed instructions for you for how you put Bitcoin into a wallet, basically. Okay. You get, and you get your 12 words. Okay. And you print the 12 words on the, excuse me, one second. And you print the 12 words onto the gift certificate so you can give it to them. And then on their side, they've got instructions for how to take that Bitcoin out of that wallet and put it into their own wallet okay. so they can save it. And on top of that, I've got tech support for you as you're putting Bitcoin in and tech support for them to get the Bitcoin back out. Now, for someone like you, Jack, no, there's no need for this. You know exactly yeah. what you're doing. It's not a problem. Yeah. But for a lot of the folks who are thinking, hey, I've started in Bitcoin. I've got my wallet. 
I'd like to give a gift to somebody for something like this, but I'm not sure I'm going to 100% do it right. I hate like heck to screw something up, but it'd be cool if I had something I could just like, can I just do this thing? So this one of the, one of the new things that I did is trying to orange pill people to spread the word. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So Darren says, I'm just wondering if the backup was inherent or if I'll need to plan for it. I think that depends. If backup was inherent or if you need to plan for we it. We were talking about backing up the server. Does it just do it or? So backing up the Embassy OS right now is not something that happens automatically. It's something that you need to actually go in and say, click the backup button, and it will go ahead and back it up for you. I know it's on the list, so it gets scheduled so you can set it up. So I don't know what they're going to do, back it up yeah. overnight or whatever else. And eventually we talked about backing up to other servers. But right now you need to do that manually. I typically back up my server on a, you know, several times a week. Okay. Uh, but for me, I'm in there all the time anyway. It's easier to just click, 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 do a backup. So. Sure. Sure. And it's not like, like for, like our web server, we actually have multiple hard drives in the same box. And it runs a soft backup every day, you know, yeah. and so there's always, there's like, I could, I could lose an episode. Is the way that it works out. Like, and that's the thing about backups. This is as good as the last time you did it, right? You can go back to that point in time. But I can see that there's no doubt that in time they'll have a scheduled, you know, and you're like 3 a.m. is a great time to do it because you're not doing anything. Yeah. Right. You know, you do it at a time when you're not doing anything. And that way, you, especially if you start backupping off site to other embassy servers, like that's going to, that's going to have to have some kind of scheduling in it just for it to. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. All right, man. Well, this was good. I want to bring up your your website again. Tell sure. people about what you do and the services you offer. Yeah. So, like I said before, you know this this is my side hustle. Thank you, Jack. You're a jerk. <laughs> they got me doing this stuff, but it's it's been a lot of fun. I love talking to people about crypto. I love answering people's questions. Everything else. Mostly, what I do is one on one consulting, hand holding, teaching people how to get started with Bitcoin. I do some other crypto as well, but. At this point, it's primarily crypto, uh, prim- primarily Bitcoin. Um, I am actually doing a class for my local community college. I don't normally do publicly open classes, but I am doing that now. Um, so if you're interested, that's going to be two weeks from now, September 20th. But it's going to fill up, I think, pretty quick. So if you want to do that, sign up sometime this week. Um, and then I also have a free Protect Your Crypto Checklist. So if you want to get to my website, you can go click on the little button. It'll bring you a little form and uh, give me your email address, and I'll send you my checklist. This is basically just an easy way for you to look through all the different things to be concerned about in terms of hacks, approaches, whatever else, areas to be aware of in terms of protecting your crypto. And then, like I mentioned, I'm all, I've got a new product out for the Do-It-Yourself Bitcoin gift kit. And, yeah. Oh, and then one last thing I do. I also offer a service where... Feel free, send me any Bitcoin questions, crypto questions to questions at your your personalcryptoassistant.com, and I'll answer those. By email, it's easy for me to answer. A lot of the questions I get, I've already got answers for, so it's easy for me to respond. If I don't, it's probably a good reason for me to uh, dig in and, and build that answer in, as part of my answer database. And uh, so I'm happy to do that. And then if it becomes something which is a little bit more personal, technical, detailed, requires more hand-holding than I can just get back in an email answer, then I do my consulting and teaching people, and that I do charge for. Which is a good thing that you do, because if you're a consultant for free, you'll be a consultant all the time for free, and you'll be poor, <laughs> exactly. and then you'll get mad, and then you won't do it anymore. Right? Like, hey, when I... When I uh, 
when I took this thing commercial, there were some people that were actually irritated that I was charging for things. And I'm like, the stuff you've been getting is still free. The show is, there's no paywall. It's still free. You don't have, like, they got mad that I, I rolled out a membership plan. I'm like, don't buy it. It's okay. Yeah, like, do it. Yeah. I, I'm hoping 10% of my people become members and I'm, that I'm good. And then I can do this forever. But without, exactly. without money, then people can't do things that you want them to do. So I, I think and, it's and, really but great. But it's also, it's also a very good feedback mechanism. Yeah. If, you know, I say this is the price and people go, well, I'm not going to pay that. It's good feedback to me that says, you know what? Maybe my product isn't good enough. Maybe the price is too high. Yeah. Yeah. Money is a great feedback thing because when you, you're watching like on the fountain app and I'm watching people stream to the podcast and somebody streaming me like 16 sats a minute, I'm like, that's great. And when they, they do it for like two minutes and quit, I'm like, guess that episode didn't, well, you didn't. Yeah, and then when you see them come back on and they, they throttled it down. Like, hey, maybe I need up my game a little bit for the rest of the week, you know? Like, money yeah. is, like, a valid feedback loop mechanism. Yeah, let's, you know, maybe that was when you just switched to the Paul Wheaton or switched from Paul Wheaton, whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, who knows, man, yeah. you know? like. <laughs> well, dude, this was a great interview. We've gone almost two hours. I really appreciate you being with us today. Again, your personal cryptoassistant.com, and I do have all of Jesse's social media links and things oh, like that as well. You. They will be in the audio notes that will be available about one hour from right now. So if you click the link in the video notes below and then you come on here and chat, tell me it's not there. We're not done yet. I have other things to do. We have to put a front and a back end. It has to be uploaded. It has to, all that stuff has to happen, but it will happen very, very shortly. So you guys can check out the survivalpodcast.com or the bitcoinbreakout.com. This will be on both feeds today and it will be the most current thing on there if you're September 6th is where you're at right now. In the future, you can just search for the title of this episode, and you'll find all of that good stuff, again, at both websites. Jesse, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Good stuff there, guys. I, I, I knew this would be a great interview. When Jesse proposed it right after the last one, I was like, yeah, let's do that. I also told him, let's let's go ahead and schedule a little bit out since you were just on the show. So I think we hit the timing just about right with that. Remember to check out Jesse's website, yourpersonalcryptoassistant.com, if you want to learn more about the services he has. And I have his Telegram, his Twitter, his uh, MeWe, and his Float. All in today's show notes. Lots of other great stuff in the show notes today. Little pitch here at the end for the Fold card. Um, I've been asked a lot of questions about Fold. I'm actually going to talk about this probably in a, a survival podcast episode, like a multi, because uh, it's not a whole show. But I've been asked a bit about different uh, incentive cards, whether debit cards or credit cards, like the BlockFi cash back card, which we can get cash back at Bitcoin at a fixed rate versus the Fold card. Um, I, I, I'm just going to tell you that I benefit financially far more from the Fold card than I would from the BlockFi, BlockFi card. Um, now, would you? I don't know. And I don't, I don't care what you're using, but I, I don't see the reason not to have multiple options here. And so I set up a page where you can learn more about the Fold card. It includes a video of the episode we did a while back with... Uh, Jeremy Hall of Fold, where we really go through the program well, and it also gives you some of my ideas and thoughts on it. But the reality is you can sign up for Fold today. Just go to the BitcoinBreakout.com forward slash Fold and learn how you can start putting Bitcoin in your pocket just by spending money you were going to spend anyway. And I'll just say one of the, the really strong points for me uh, with Fold has been that I am a 
I am somebody that buys a lot of stuff from Amazon. I should say my wife buys a lot of stuff from Amazon. But we, we get a lot of things. If it if we can get it from Amazon and it costs us the same or less as getting it from the store and somebody will bring it to our house instead of having to go to the store and get it and deal with people, we tend to do that. So we, we have a fairly high uh, monthly spend with Amazon. And up to $500 of monthly Amazon spend can earn you 5% cash back. Try to do that with your BlockFi card. 5% cash in Bitcoin. 5% in Bitcoin on $500, and that's just what Amazon does. Uh, I don't want to turn this into the segment here, but I, I'll also say this. like I took the, the kids out and my wife last week. We went to Olive Garden, uh, and I got 4% cash back on Olive Garden gift cards. I think it was 4%. It was either 4 or 7 It was It was good. Whatever it was, it was good. Um, it, that's another example. And then last week we also had a night where we just didn't feel like cooking. We did a DoorDash order, and we got 7% by using DoorDash gift cards versus paying directly with the card uh, and spinning the wheel or taking the flat 1%. Those are just a few examples. So I would really encourage you, if you're considering the Fold card, really look at all the great gift cards that you can purchase with Fold for additional cash back. And so if these, are these companies that you use already, like Home Depot? Like, I now buy all my shit at Home Depot instead of Lowe's because Home Depot's in there and Lowe's isn't. And I'm getting additional sats back, right, from using a Home Depot, Depot gift card. I'll do a segment on this maybe Friday. Anyway, check it out, thebitcoinbreakout.com forward slash fold. With that, let's wrap up today. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, again, I encourage you to consider adding Start9 Digital Server to your life. If you do and you don't become an MSB member, just like if you don't get the Fold card, if you don't become an MSB member, you hate money. Oh, and get this. You can get a Start9 gift card in the Fold app and get sats back on it, and then you can still get your discount from the MSB. How cool. Yes, Start9 is in Fold, the Fold app, with a discount uh, if you or a, a sats back if you buy uh, the, the gift card there and use it to pay. Pretty cool, isn't it? Anyway, with that, this is why you tune in for content like this, guys. Because of all these little life hacks that over time add up to a big difference in your life. With that, has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around they said you should have a house the american way a dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay there's a better way to do this let me show you a better way